I'm on. Good morning. This morning, uh, John 17 is our text. Um, let's, uh, since you, you, you got it up on the back screen, Carl, can you put it on the front screen, the memory verse? We didn't get to read that together. If we don't, if we can't, we can't. There we go. Since we're right here, let's read this together, okay? Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's John 17.3, our verse for this past week. Thanks, Carl. My name is Larry, for those of you who don't know. Um, I serve here at North Park with our elder team. Um, <clears throat> both our pastor, John and Phil, are on vacation. And so I'm uh, filling the position here for them today. And it's my privilege to do this, and I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, this morning, we're going to read through, I'm going to read it for us at the beginning uh, here of John chapter 17. This is the prayer of Jesus. <clears throat> now, in the ministry of Jesus, as we get to uh, chapter 14, with the washing of the disciples' feet, um, excuse me, chapter 13, and then the meeting that he has with his disciples there in the upper room. They refer to it as the upper room discourse. But Jesus, in his final hours, remember as we read this, and I'll read it for us in a moment here, but as we read John chapter 17, keep in mind that Jesus is literally within just a few hours of being brutally killed. He knows this. He's not, like, wondering what's happening next. He knows in just a few hours I'm going to be uh, falsely accused, I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be brutally murdered, and it's going to be excruciating. Context-wise, in the mind of the Savior, this is what's going on. The men, they're not entirely clear. There's some sadness because of the things Jesus has told them, but they're not entirely clear on the events that are yet to come. But there, make no mistake, Jesus is crystal clear it's going to be brutal, and I'm going to be killed. But remember, not just that, as horrible as it is, one of the worst deaths a person can die was Roman crucifixion, horrible. They were experts at exacting pain. But even worse than that, Jesus is going to be condemned, damned by the Father for the sins of humanity. He's going to bear that on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. That's what's coming when we read John 17. So starting in verse 1 of John chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. 
I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we gather around this text for a few moments this morning to remember the words of our Lord as he sought your face on behalf of his people, we see uh, his disciples kneeled all around him. Maybe, Maybe he could touch them even as he prayed. And Lord, he prays so they can hear. And John records it so that we can hear. Some of the last words of our Lord praying for us and for his church and for his men. And the amazing heart of our Lord in the the stress and the duress that he's under and it's growing this night. And yet he takes time to put these important things forward so that we can learn. So Lord, I pray as we look at this together, help us to have discerning hearts to hear a word from you today. May you speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a a powerful prayer. Um, You can picture Jesus on his knees looking up into heaven to his father as he prays and the men all around him. Maybe maybe his hand is right out here on the shoulder of Peter who's going to deny him with a curse in just a couple hours. You can can hear the the Lord as, as he prays. And, it, and there's, there's a lot here, and we're not going to 
deal with a lot. There's really only three or four verses that I want to zero in on. But what I wanted to do first to to maybe help us a little bit in regard to this book of John is uh, define three or four words for us. It's very helpful, I think, uh, as we study our Bible and together as a church as we've been reading through the text. um, One of the, the texts that we read this week was John 17. And so it can be helpful. So there, here's, here's some words. So there's the word world or cosmos in the original, but uh, world. So if you go to uh, 17, verse 5. Uh, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the, wor- with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory which I had with you before the world was. Uh, that word world, before the created order. Glorify me together with you with the glory which I had before the created order existed. That word world uh, in that context means created order. There's one meaning of the word world in the book of John. And you'll see this if you go to 110. We won't go there. But if you go to 110, you can see all three meanings in one verse. Um, if, If you go to 17 verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask on behalf of the world. What's he talking about there? I don't I do not ask on behalf of the created order. That's not what he's what he's saying. I do not ask on behalf of the rest of humanity. I'm praying right now. I'm praying for these 11 guys. So it it, it has the meaning of mankind, mankind broadly. Then if you go to verse 14. I have given them your world, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are not of the world. So they are not of the created order. Well, of course they are. Or they are not of humanity. Well, yeah, of course they are. I, they are not of the world. He's talking about the fallen, sinful world system. They're not of the world's system. And so in John, you'll find those three, and it can be helpful when you're reading and you see that word world. What does he mean here? That word cosmos, what's he saying here? And it can be helpful in understanding the, in the context of that verse what's being said. So there's one. Another thing that John often mentions, and Jesus in particular in this text, he mentions your name or the name of God. And so he, he talks about in verse 11 there, Um, I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. The name. What's he saying there? It, It has to do with the name of God is a revelation of the nature of God. So when you study, particularly the Old Testament, multiple names for God given there. And the reason why the Lord does that is to give uh, additional information about the characteristics of God, of the attributes of God, and so on. So, for instance, the name that maybe uh, first comes to mind is Yahweh. Well, I am who I am. I am the God who is. And so uh, the name tells us about the nature of God. One other example uh, and then we'll move on from this, but one other example would be uh, Abraham when he goes on the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac and God provides uh, a sacrifice so he doesn't have to sacrifice uh, his son, when that's all done, the name of God, Yahweh Yira, or we maybe know it better as Jehovah Jireh, 
God will see to it. God sees to it. It tells us about the nature of God. God is a God who pre-sees, he has prevision, sees all that could be, and he is a God of provision. He always provides. God will see to it. So his name reflects his nature. When Jesus says, keep them in your name, keep them within who you are. Part of our security, no, all of our security is the very nature of the living God. Father, keep them in your name. Important to understand the term. Uh, Glory. I've got two more, glory and and truth. We'll look at glory first. Glory. He he talks about uh, glory. uh, Verse 5, Father, glorify me together yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Um, He talks there in verse 10. And all things are mine, mine are yours, yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Glory. What's the glory of God? What's he talking about there? Well, one definition is to reveal or manifest God. Anything that reveals or manifests God speaks to the glory of God. Um, Retired pastor uh, John uh, Piper, uh, he says that it's the beauty and the full panorama of his perfections. All of the perfections of God, all of who he is, that's the glory of God. Jesus manifested the glory of God everywhere he went on the earth. Walking on the sea, glory of God. Multiplying bread and feeding 5,000 people, that's the glory of God. Look at the awesome power of God. Lazarus, come forth, and he lives. The glory of God over life and death is on display. When we talk about glory, we're talking about all the manifest, the full panorama of his perfections. The perfections of God is the glory of God. And then the last one is truth. This word truth, what is truth? Well, one definition can be, can be that which conforms to what is. It conforms to what is, that's truth. The problem is agreeing on what is, isness. And we, we don't have to get into all of that, but it's the idea what is the basis for truth. For, for the believer, then, truth is that which conforms to what God knows. God knows everything. He knows what can be. He knows what might have been. He knows what will be. And he knows what truth is. What conforms to what God knows, it's true. Now, he also obviously knows all lies. That doesn't make lies true. It's the knowledge of the difference between truth and error. God knows. What God knows is truth. So here's how we could put it for us then in what we're looking at here. Expressions of the nature and being of God specifically All that the Father gave Jesus to say while on earth, along with all that the New Testament writers would record in the coming years, this in addition to the law and the prophets and the writings. This right here, that's truth. The text of Scripture. And on the basis of that, you can formulate, and and they have been formulated, correct systems of thought to now understand what is, is, what isness is, so now you can define reality. But in our society and in our day we've fallen away from that an understanding of the basis of truth so then we wonder how certain things get proclaimed as true in our day the guy a theologian carl truman he's a reform guy <clears throat> he released a book about october the rise and triumph of the modern self very interesting it's dense reading but it's a history of thought and what he does he starts back 
maybe in the 1500s, and he traces key ideas through different thinkers all the way up to our uh, modern day, and we find out in a process of thought how it is that today it can be readily accepted broadly that I'm a man in a woman's body or I'm a woman in a man's body and actually believe that it's true, along with a lot of other foolishness. And it all is the history of ideas that's happened over time. And it started when thinkers started to move away from the truth of God to the creation and other things in the search for truth. It's very interesting. Uh, These things don't just happen overnight. Uh, While the realities of some of these things have come upon us quickly, they've been developing for hundreds of years. So we need to understand what truth is. It's a key phrase in John's Gospel. Jesus, in uh, 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, the, the apostle records grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You want a right philosophical system or basis for your life? Start with Jesus, the creator God. So now let's, let's zero in a little bit on verse 20, because I want to talk to us then about unity. We talk about a basis for unity here first, try to define it, and then talk a little bit about the so what. Okay, so let's, let's work on this a little bit, starting in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Remember, he's referring to the 11 in particular. But for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Those who believe in me through their, zero in on that term, word. Word. The basis for true Christian unity is the basis is unity with the apostles, specifically with their teaching. We're talking about an understanding and acceptance of what the apostles have written, what they have said, the Word of God is what we're talking about. Um, how, how they were trained by Jesus and what they then pass on to us. In other words, agreement in the truth. That's the basis for unity as far as Scripture is concerned. So there in verse 6, when Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world, he's talking about I've instilled in them, I've given them a revelation of the very nature of God. There uh, in verse 8, if we move down just a little further, in verse 8, For the words which you have given me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came from you. For over three years, Jesus has been teaching them and giving them the very word of God. He also, in his upper room discourse from Uh, one of the things he reminds them is when I leave, the Spirit will come and he will bring to mind everything that I have said to you. We wonder how these guys wrote all this down years later. Like John writing uh, 1 John, maybe 60 years later he writes that book. And how does he know or remember all that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised, will come to you and you will recall everything that I've ever said to you. Jesus says, I've given them your words. Verse 14 He says it again, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I've given them your word. And then the last one, verse 17, 
He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. And so when he says to us then in verse 20, those who will believe in me through their word, that's what he's talking about. All the things that he has taught the apostles and all the things that the Spirit will bring to mind and will teach them, uh, those are the things that will unify my people. Here's, here's some uh, for instances. First John chapter 1, verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's John, the word that Jesus had passed on to him. He's saying what we have seen and, and heard. Remember, he's writing this maybe 60 years later. He's saying, I was a young man and I was there. I saw him. I touched him. I watched him eat. I was there. It's true. And if you accept these words that we proclaim, you too can have fellowship with us. You can come into the family of faith. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Another one in Acts chapter 2, remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Amazing. So then those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching uh, as Jesus prayed that uh, all who will believe in me through their word, and then they're devoted to the apostles' teaching because it's the very words of the Lord that they're being taught. The basis for unity is the gospel. It's the basis, it's the unity with the apostles and especially their teaching. Here's one more from Ephesians. This is Paul writing to the Ephesians, those who have come to faith, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The unity that we want to practice as believers is a unity of people who are under the truth of God and have accepted the, the gospel as given in the scripture, that's, it's the basis for true unity. That's why wherever the gospel has went, wherever it's been received, nations are changed, people's lives are changed radically because the gospel changes things. The basis for unity is agreement with the apostles, acceptance of the prophets. It's the word of God. That's what it is. So if we want to define unity then, let's look at verse 21. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. This idea of oneness, uh, that as you, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, there's that, uh, without going far afield, there's that interpenetration of the persons of the Godhead where the three persons of the Godhead are so fully interpenetrated as if they're one. 
There's three, yet one. That's what he's talking about, that level of unity, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be with us, that we really, that we literally enter into the very life of God himself. So when we're, when we're defining unity, we have to talk about shared apostolic truth, that is the gospel, as given in the scripture, and then also a shared divine life. In other words, rebirth in Christ, because it's what the gospel teaches. It's how we come into unity with Christ and with the Father. And then we're adopted into his family. And we're brothers and sisters with Christ. And we're now brothers and sisters with one another if we know Christ. That's what true unity uh, is. So it's it's a sharing in the truth of the gospel. It extends beyond the borders of denominations into every group that proclaims as truth The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way for sins to be forgiven. There are churches all around this world today preaching the gospel. And we're unified with them in the gospel. We have our distinctives as group. Those are secondary. They're they're important. But primarily, we're unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So the unity then that that we're talking about here is not first a unity between people as much as it is a unity with the apostles, their understanding of the gospel, and then our collective oneness with the Father and the Son. We're one with them so we can be one with each other in our shared understanding of the gospel. Listen to uh, Paul in Romans chapter 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs, heirs heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Look at, uh, again, at verse 22. The glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are. The glory which you have given me. What's that? Think about it. Jesus is talking in this prayer as if everything is complete. Now, in order of a timeline, actually it's a few hours. We don't know exactly, but it's a few hours yet before he'll be killed. So it's in that sense, it's not complete. But in his prayer with the Father, he's speaking as if it's complete. So the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. What's the greatest glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, we, we talked about glory, and it's all the attributes of God all speak to the glory of God. But what's the greatest glory that will exalt him to the right hand of the Father, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father? What is it? It's the cross. He's going to be brutally, barbarically killed. And then he's going to be condemned by the Father. And the highest glory comes to Jesus because of the sacrifice that he's going to make. Because why is he doing it? Certainly not for himself. He gets nothing out of that other than the glory that comes from it. He does it for people who at that point don't know him, don't love him, and probably don't even like him. And he dies for them to save them. 
That is the ultimate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, the glory which you have given me, I have given them. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. His glory given to us. Sometimes how we live out that glory is just simply being faithful in our, in our lives and doing what the Lord brings our way uh, to the best that we can do it with the, the strength that the Lord gives. Sometimes the way that, that uh, we exalt the glory of the living God is in the face of suffering and death. We acknowledge him as Lord. We bow to his will and we say God is good no matter what. Because that's the glory of God because he shared his glory with us. And Christ is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. When we, no matter what comes my way, God, you're good. No matter what. And that's the glory which you have given me and I have given to them that they may be one. So unity centers in the church. Centers around a common truth, scripture, and a common life. That is, rebirth. Men and women, boys and girls, who have given their lives to Christ, made him Lord or put him as Lord in their life and want to live for him, can experience true unity. And then things like organizational unity, structures and how we operate and other things that matter, they're they're secondary. The thing that matters most are the body of Christ, the believing saints under the word of God, drawn together to worship the living God. That's true unity. So why? What's the goal? Look at verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected, perfected or completed, complete in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. Why this prayer for unity? So that the world may know that you sent me. If there's anything that our world needs today, it's a, it's a true knowledge that there is a God in heaven and that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is a Savior that's offering salvation uh, to all who will come. And the goal of our unity is to put that on the, on the display can't believe how, how those people love each other. I can't believe the self-sacrificing. And why would, why would people forgive the, the one who murdered their loved one or all the other things that the body of Christ and believers have done over the years? It is the idea to put on display the glory of God and what he has done that the world may know who Jesus is. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The very prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in his last hours was that the visible unity of his church would be such that those outside the faith would see it and be challenged by the truth and beauty of the gospel. So I've got uh, three questions. Well, three questions question points here, kind of maybe in application, okay? Because what do we do with this unity? So here's, here's one, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So here's the question. Do you know the only true and only living God specifically? Do you know him in the person of Jesus Christ? 
And I'm not talking about some sort of intellectual assent that, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've heard the stories and, and I agree, it's, maybe even agree it's true. It's not what I'm talking about. Uh, James mentions the fact that you believe God is one, you do good. Even the demons believe and tremble. It's more than just information. Have you submitted your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's our prayer for each one of us today. And if you, do, if you haven't, if you don't know Christ, we would love for you to know and we'd love to share that with you. Because ultimately, bottom line, that's what this is all about. Or the rest of everything I've said is totally irrelevant. No Jesus, no unity. Not ultimately. Doesn't make sense unless he's the foundation. Question number two. Can you say that you love the saints? I'm talking about the saints in your church. The ones you sit by, the ones that you work with, uh, the ones that you know at work in other places. Can you say that you love the saints? Listen uh, to, to Jesus now. He's going to give us an 11th commandment. Jesus would have been there when the first 10 were given. He's God. He can give us a new one. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you love the saints? That's the question. It's a command of the Lord, so it's not an option. But it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Do I truly know the living God in the person of Christ? And do I love the saints? Am I willing to sacrifice for the saints? And here's the, here's the last one. Are you committed, we looked at this text, are you committed to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to, and the breaking of bread and the prayers, Acts 2? Are you committed to the apostles' teaching? Are you committed to the book? to the teaching, and to the prayers. And it's a good self-examination question, but remember, without it, there's no unity. Because the foundation, one of the foundations of unity is the Apostle's Word. And without it, we have no life. And without life, we have no unity. If we're going to be united believers, we have to be people of the word. And so the apostles teaching and then the fellowship and this for those who uh, are online with us. We have every reason to gather with the saints unless our health keeps us otherwise to gather with the saints in worship. And the breaking of bread and prayers as a priority in our life. Organizational unity is related, but it's not the same thing. Unity is first in the gospel and the changed life it brings. Then we unite in local church fellowship and live it out as best we can. Well, kind of bringing this together here. As uh, Carl Truman in his book, when he finished that, uh, it's, it's pretty dense, maybe 400 pages of description of a historical thought. But when he gets to the end, it's been all descriptive, describing what's, what he sees has happened. He gives some initial thoughts forward. Maybe he'll write more in the future, I don't know. But he says this, first thought, the Christian faith is first and foremost doctrinal. Doctrine. It is. Because if we don't believe right, 
We can't live right. We can't be united right. And so the Christian faith is first and foremost doctrine, doctrinal. And then in light of that, Christian community is of paramount importance. And one of the most important things in our life is Christian community. Because it's in community that we learn the Bible together primarily. Now, I love to study. And God has blessed me with a fairly significant library that I'm thankful for. And so I spend a lot of time reading and studying. But every idea that I ever have related to the Scripture, you know where it gets tested? Right here. With you. With our preachers. With our teachers. Because we learn the text in community. It's where we test ideas about the Scripture and about God and about life in Christ. And we do that in community. So you, you go to Acts 17. You don't, don't have to turn there. But Paul is being pushed out of Thessalonica. He stirred up a riot like he usually does. And so the brothers take him and they get him out of town before he gets beat. And he goes to Berea. And it says in there, and he goes to the synagogue because that's what he normally did. And so he goes to the synagogue and he has opportunity. He teaches. But then the thing that's really interesting, and the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they studied the scripture to see if those things were so, which is wonderful. How do you think they did that? See, they didn't have over a thousand books and logos like I do at home that they could go home and study and look and see. They didn't have that. They didn't even have a copy of the text, most maybe one in a thousand or something, the synagogue had the text. They revered the text, kept it in a special place. And when you pull out the scroll, you can see all the people stand up because God's going to speak. So Paul, after he leaves and these noble Bereans that are going to search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so, they did it in community. The elders, they pull out the text, they read the text that Paul taught, and they discuss and the implications of what he said and, and the connections that Paul made to see if it was accurate. See, they're studying in community, not just in their own closet. Please continue to read your Bible. Please continue to study. Test your ideas in the body of Christ. That's the point. That they all may be one. Shared love and understanding of the Word of God. And shared divine life that is rebirth in Christ. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that we've had opportunity today to look into your Word. Pray that we've been faithful there. Lord Jesus, the incredible fortitude and courage, the resolve that you had when you set your face, decided that it is time and you went there to die. Along the way, you tenderly remembered us and you prepared your men for the events that were going to come and you left these awesome records so that we can know you. And Lord, we just want to say we love you and we thank you for it. Help us, Lord, to be a people that are unified in you, around your word, and live it out in our daily life. Thank you, Lord, that we get to sing praises to you. And as we close our time, that we get to sing to you again because we just love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.